Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, I'm recovering from the solo show I did last week there at the end of the session, uh, but we are talking about the real end of the session, post-veto uh, period, all the things that happened after that. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So um, I'm going to be talking about that. Jasmine's going to be talking about the lawsuits that always happen right after the end of the session. So we're going to go into what is in court already. I have a short segment about uh, some of Kentucky coal mines and their safety concerns and kind of how the enforcement mechanism we use around coal mining is a little bit falling apart and the problems with that. And we have some quick hits. And in addition to all that, we have a guest this week. It's Robert Lavertis Bell. Robert Lavertis Bell is running for Kentucky House, Kentucky House District number 43. Um, he is a Democratic Socialist. And Jasmine was asking me uh, when we were putting the interview together, is this <laughs> our first socialist? And it is. It is our first socialist that we've interviewed. Uh, very interesting guy. Uh, you know, I've known him for a little bit now. We, we've worked together on a couple of issues. And he's he's a really uh, he's a really good person. He's running against Pam Stevenson, who's also a really good person. Some really great candidates in that race. I'm really glad I don't have to vote in that that one um but yeah uh we had him on today and he talked a lot about uh you know his platform why he's running why he decided to stay in the race what he wants to do in frankfurt and, and all of that jasmine how do you think the interview went i thought it went really well and i i think like i remember paying attention to his prior metro council race and he seems like someone who even though you know he is more left than a lot of the people um that he's gonna see in frankfurt he seems like someone who is going to work with people to accomplish good policy making um yeah but i thought the interview was really good yeah that's certainly been my experience with him uh i mean you know some of the stuff i'm sure he would like to push a little bit further left than i would (laughs) on some of the things that that were that we've worked together on uh but but he um he's a very uh, I, i don't know if pragmatic is a word he would scoff at but in my mind maybe but anyways uh it, he might i don't know yeah hard to say we should ask him <laughs> later know better than me yeah but uh but anyways you should stick around and listen to that interview if you want to we're gonna have i think pam stevenson is scheduled to come on next week so we're gonna have a nice like back-to-back uh for for the candidates in that race so definitely listen up if you especially if you live in district uh 43 um uh, to both of those if you're still making up your mind all right. Um, well, without any further ado, let's get into uh, talking about what happened at the end of the session. So, Jasmine, you weren't here last week, but last week I went over all the vetoes that the governor issued during the veto period. And the legislature tended it, they went ahead and overrode almost every one. So uh, it wasn't without drama, though. Um, the biggest piece of drama, I think, probably was SB 167, the library bill. Uh, Jasmine, I, you know, we kind of didn't talk about this much. I talked about it last week. Are you familiar with the library bill? Do you remember what that's about? Yeah, I remember the library bill. You know how I feel about libraries. Yeah. I li- love the library. Yeah, you're a big library fan. <laughs> I know that. I so. don't I don't buy books. Libraries only. <laughs> libraries are great. Libraries are great. So, yes, if you need a reminder, a listener, uh, this bill uh, allows county governments basically to have a lot more power over their public libraries. So, you know, the current state is libraries are mostly like, you know, they respond directly to voters. But that is that would not be the case uh, under this bill. 
And the reason for this bill is because Pikeville College, which is, which is a private institution, they, they want to take over one of the main libraries there in Pikeville. Um, the veto override after Governor Bashir vetoed this bill, it originally actually failed the House. I think it got like 48 votes, um, but they tried again, which I didn't even know you could do. I didn't know you could like fail and then bring it up for a vote again, but I guess you can. And on the second time, it it uh, passed. It, the veto was overridden in the House with 51 votes. Uh, it was not close in the Senate. Philip Wheeler, who is the state senator from Pikeville, he did like a Nixonian victory salute afterwards. If you're like familiar with with that, where you like put your like peace signs over your head, but they're like V's <laughs> for victory. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I saw in a, a video later that Robert Stivers was like trying to get him to like lower his hands, like stop doing, stop doing that. Yeah, in in the photo, Robert Stivers is like smiling next to him but if you see the video it it seems more like divers is smiling out of like this is awkward this stop you're embarrassing yourself man (laughs) yeah uh yeah so anyways that unfortunately that that bill is overridden um you know it doesn't affect every library system in the state and in fact like the louisville free public library is one of the ones that's unaffected um but if you live in a small town or a smaller county and you know some of those places are where libraries are really really important um yeah this bill would affect you and now your county government has more control over your library i saw Philip Wheeler the next day after this happened at my CLE. Here, was he like glowing with excitement? Was he like, yes, we screwed the libraries over. He looked, he looked pretty happy. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to avoid him. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Another thing that happened. Uh, th- this is a bill that we talked about last week as well. This was something that was uncovered by the Pritchard committee about SB one and SB one was, you know, a bill that dealt with SBDMs. It dealt with uh, kind of the way that schools were governed inside of counties. And then they attached the big CRT bill, Max Wise's CRT bill at the end of it. And the, you know, kind of the, the penalties provision of the bill basically said anybody who's in violation of this law is subject to criminal penalties. And they forgot to edit it out to make it so that, like, teachers that don't teach CRT correctly aren't subject to those penalties. So that was, like, something they, the Pritchard Committee caught. And they were like, the way that this bill is written, you're, you're threatening teachers with jail time. And, you know... Senator Max Wise was like, that was not our intention. That was a mistake. And what they did was uh, HB 44, which is a mental health excused absences law. We talked about this all the way back at the beginning of the session. Um, HB 44, uh, there was a provision added to be like, we, you guys are no longer, teachers are no longer subject to penalties on, uh, for the CRT provision in SB 1. So, you know, that is how that was fixed. It was all passed. SB1 is passed. Uh, HB44 is passed. Um, and that's how that went through. I guess, you know, in the end, you know, it, Governor Bashir was not able to veto SB1, which was kind of what they wanted, or wasn't able to, you know, veto a new bill that would have included SB1. But we did get HB44 out of the deal. Uh, and it's hard for me to say whether or not, you know, they would have actually passed HB44, given that it was after the veto period and they had a lot of things to do, if you know, this fix wasn't appended to it. So I guess it's good now that school districts have to include mental uh, mental health days, excused absences um, in, their, in their school plans. So anyways, that was what happened mm-hmm. with SB1 and how that all got fixed. 
The vetoes that were allowed to stand were some really technical budgetary items and you know the the one bill that was allowed to actually the veto was actually allowed to stand was the bill that allowed lawyers to carry concealed weapons in the courtroom. Something applicable to you, I guess maybe maybe less applicable to you in your new job, Jasmine, but uh something that you probably have opinions on uh regarding lawyers carrying concealed weapons um, in the courtroom. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that they let that one lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the gun toting portion of the bill had been added as like a florida amendment at the last second that's you know we talked about this a little bit last week after it was discovered what the bill actually did law enforcement court groups and you know even moderate and conservative groups were like we don't like this and so they let the veto stand one thing that's kind of annoying is you know i don't i don't understand understand totally what the original bill was supposed to do but it passed like unanimously it was like very clear that this was like something that needed to get fixed and now because they appended this random thing to the end of it the thing that actually needed to get fixed now is allowed to you know stay unfixed for a whole year so way to go johnny turner you uh tanked something that needed to actually happen so that's uh that's kind of the drama that we talked about some of the vetoes and, and th- the things that happened uh, regarding that. There were a few bills that actually passed in the last seconds after the veto period occurred, which is something else that you're allowed to do. Um, but given that the legislature is controlled by Republicans and the, the governor's uh, Democrat, they mostly have to be pretty, you know, uh, they wouldn't be bills that the governor could veto. But this is what got passed. So HB 604, that appropriates $2 million for cannabis research at the University of Kentucky. It was also admitted to include a bunch of appropriations for the retirement system and about $10 million in appropriations for projects in Clay County, which is Robert Stiver's home, and for the Kentucky Center for the Arts. Uh, Clay County, obviously important for Republicans, and the Kentucky Center for the Arts was something that the Bashir administration and Louisville representative, representatives really wanted. Uh, so we have a lot of money, uh, and that's what we decided to spend it on. So that's what happened with HB 604. HB 222, that is the anti-slap law, um, which is, the anti-slap is this concept about people basically using lawsuits to like silence people. Jasmine, am I getting that right? Uh, is there a better way to say that? No, that's that's right. Okay. Um, Representative Nima Cole Carney has been a big champion of this bill, you know, pretty much since she's been in the legislature, and it passed. So that passed. So that's good. I'm good for Representative Cole Carney. I know that she's been a big advocate for this ever since she's gotten there. So that's I'm glad that that passed. SB 90, that allows for a small number of counties to offer offer diversion programs instead of incarceration for people with substance abuse or mental health problems. That's good. Uh, they're piloting it. They do have plans to expand it in the bill if it's successful. So seems like a good idea to me. Uh, and I'm glad that it was able to pass. And the only one that was a little bit controversial is SB 163, which allows some people with felonies to receive their keys scholarships. The House pushed to have all people with felonies receive the scholarship, but the Senate would not budge on excluding people convicted of what are like violent crimes. Something we've talked about on the show a lot is there's a lot of things that fall under that that aren't necessarily like what I would consider violent. Anybody who's been convicted of drug trafficking or people who have been convicted about crimes against a minor. So the House wanted this to go a lot further. The Senate said no. And the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy and the ACLU have actually called on the governor to veto this bill. He has two weeks after the end of the session to decide whether or not he's going to do that. Um, I don't know if if he's made a decision yet, um, but that's a tough that's a tough call because you know obviously this bill does make a pretty significant step in allowing some people to get their key scholarships, but it you know it 
inappropriately uh, stops other people from getting them. So I don't know. Jasmine, what would you do if you were Governor Bashir in this situation? I mean, I want some people to get it. Yeah. So I don't think I would veto it. It's a hard decision. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if you veto it, maybe they come back next session and and pass a better piece of legislation, but probably not. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I would probably have a meeting with the ACLU and the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy and understand why they wanted me to veto it. Uh, listen to them and, and see see what I thought. I don't know. It would be a hard decision, though. Okay, so that's what happened in the last couple of days of the legislative session. Uh, but, you know, as is uh, what happens every year after the legislation adjourns, after the legislature adjourns is that there's a bunch of lawsuits that come out that sue to say that the bills that were passed were unconstitutional in one way or another. So Jasmine, tell us about that. All right. So we haven't done a lawsuit update in a little while, but we have two new ones to talk about today. The first one is a temporary injunction issued by Judge Wingate. So the legislature passed several bills curbing the governor's executive power, basically. Um, the, the two that we're going to talk about in this lawsuit are House Bill 248 and 388. House Bill 248 is a bill that prohibits state officers except the attorney general from using public funds to challenge the constitutionality of laws. Then 388 would give a legislative committee decision-making power over executive branch contracts. Governor Bashir sued to block the bills, um, and these bills are contained emergency clauses. Um, and he also requested a temporary injunction. And on Monday, Judge Thomas Wingate of Franklin Circuit Court issued one. Um, Judge Wingate took particular concern with House Bill 48 as it essentially blocks the governor's access to the courts. Um, and, you know, we, we've talked about the things that have to be met to issue an injunction. And, and one is like, you know, a harm or injury and, and certainly not being able to ac access the courts is an injury. Um, and then a temporary injunction also requires some likelihood of success on the merits. So um, Judge Wingate does seem to think that there is some merit to the governor's arguments in this case. And so, um, he will hear arguments regarding the merits on May 31st, um, but for now there is a temporary injunction blocking those bills from going into effect. And Judge Wingate is not at all the final authority on this, right? Uh, whatever he rules will then be appealed up to the Court of Appeals and then right. up to this, the Supreme Court. Yeah, this is just the the first the trial court level. This is Franklin Circuit Court, um, where these cases start and. We, you know, we've talked about Franklin Circuit Court before. There's two judges. Um, there's Judge Wingate and Judge Philip Shepard. And for some reason, Judge Shepard gets m the most heat. <laughs> Judge Wingate doesn't seem to get as much heat as Judge Shepard does. And Judge Shepard has an opponent for the first time in many years in his judicial race. And it's a very... A lot, a lot of money is being poured into that judicial race. Yeah, in I, saw that, County. I, I, I saw that. I saw that Judge Shepard actually pulled ahead in the fundraising battle, yes, but it is going to be more expensive than almost every legislative race probably mm -hmm. this year, and approaching like a statewide election in terms of the money that's being raised. Uh, but yeah, Franklin Circuit Court continues to be the trial court level where all of these things get decided, and it's really important. So you know, 
it makes sense that some these are some of the most hotly contested races or are beginning to be some of the most hotly contested races in uh, in the state. So, yeah, yeah, I saw Judge Shepard at an event a few months ago. And it was the first time I'd ever seen him in person. And I was starstruck. Well, you're just seeing everybody, Jasmine. <laughs> you're just like, you know, you're hanging out with Philip Wheeler and Judge Shepard. <laughs> like, it's you're just all over the place. Yeah, I guess I am these days. <laughs> all right. So the second lawsuit is a lawsuit over the omnibus abortion bill. Um, the ACLU has filed suit on behalf of the EMW clinic in Louisville to block House Bill 3. After the legislature overrode the governor's veto, Planned Parenthood and the EMW clinic suspended abortion procedures until they have a ruling from the court because basically this bill makes it incredibly hard to to comply. They don't have systems in place to even comply with the bill. And of course, the bill had an emergency clause. And so they suspended procedures when it went into effect. Um. The standard in abortion restriction cases, we've talked about this quite a bit as well, it's the undue burden standard, and that comes from Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a U.S. Supreme Court case, and it asks whether a state abortion regulation has the purpose or effect of imposing an undue burden on the patient, which is defined as a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability. Um, so viability is kind of a, a, a key word in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So House Bill 3 does a lot of different things. And we, we've talked about that on the show, but basically like a quick summary of them, a ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, a ban on medication by mail um, used to terminate early pregnancy, it also includes new restrictions for um, people under 18 seeking abortions, including additional steps like asking for a judge's permission when a parent is not available or unlikely to approve because of abuse or neglect. It also contains a requirement that fetal remains be disposed of by burial or cremation, and that's something that could add a lot of money to the cost of the procedure. Um, it also has a requirement that the Cabinet for Health and Family Services create an extensive system to certify and oversee anyone who manufactures, ships, or dispenses the two-drug regimen that ends pregnancy. And it also has a requirement that the state sets up a complaint portal online, and it has to list all health, worker, health workers who provide abortions or abortion medication. Um, it would allow anonymous complaints and it would require the state to investigate all of them. So that's a very like boiled down version of what House Bill 3 does. And so that ban on abortions after 15 weeks, what the bill does is it changes the probable gestational age from 20 weeks to 15. And so I think there's absolutely a viability issue here. But Mississippi passed a 15-week law and that case has gone to the Supreme Court of the United States. And so a decision is expected in that case in June. And so basically, you know, 15 weeks has never been what we've considered viability before. Um, I, it's been 20 weeks. And so 
knowing that this Mississippi law passed and that this case was going to be heard, Kentucky wanted to have their law in place so that if the Supreme Court rules in Mississippi's favor, then, then we already have our ban on abortion after 15 weeks. So that certainly seems like an undue burden under Planned Parenthood versus Casey to me. But of course, um, the makeup of the Supreme Court has changed over the last few years and seems like it could go a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it seems highly likely that it heads in a different direction, uh, at least from from my standpoint. Um, but Jasmine, you know, uh, abortion restrictions are not anything new to the Kentucky legislature, especially since like 2017. But every other year, I think when they've been enacted, you know, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood or some combination of, of those two groups have been able to get a ruling from a federal court pretty quickly to allow abortions to continue in Kentucky. And that obviously hasn't happened this year. Does that have to do more with the fact that this court case is in front of the Supreme Court or just the judges that, you know, would, are hearing it? Or why, why is it uh, a little bit slower this time than, than in previous years? I'm not sure why it's slower. I'm sure that they've asked for a temporary injunction. I don't have access to the pleadings in the case. And so I don't know when that motion is is set to be heard. Um, But I'm, I'm sure that they've asked for that to try to block that law from going into effect. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, It's a it's a grand mystery. Uh, Yeah, it is something that, you know, I kind of had expected there to be some sort of temporary injunction in place already. And obviously there's not. So definitely something that's different. Um, And it just, uh, you know, it's going to it's getting harder and harder in this country and in the state to access abortion care. Um, And it likely uh, that's a trend that's likely to accelerate, at least. Right. And I I know that both EMW and Planned Parenthood are still, you know, accepting phone calls and patients to try to connect them to care in other states while this is going on, um, which is very good, um, but really unfortunate that, that they've had to halt proceedings um, and, and wait for some guidance from the court. Yeah. Uh, and the Kentucky Health Justice Network is a really cool organization. Um, and if you're someone who's in need of abortion care, um, they are working with people to help them get the resources they need to seek it in another state right now. So that's a resource that is available um, in this state if you need it. <sighs> All right, Jasmine. Um, yeah, we are feeling the after effects of the legislative session, but at least it's over. Um, let's talk about something different now. Um, and it's, it's, you know, just as big a bummer, unfortunately. And that's uh, a situation with Kentucky's coal mine safety. So James Bruggers is a journalist for the publication Inside Climate News. And he published a substantial piece uh, of journalism this week about a major crisis facing Kentucky's coal mines. The, the subject is kind of about how in the midst of Kentucky's coal mine or coal industry collapse, the number of mines which are out of compliance with regulations has started to skyrocket. And the issue is is with uh, what some people are calling zombie mines, which are mines that are out of compliance with regulations, but which, you know, are not they're not being operated by anybody and the company that actually operates them has you know no need to bring them back or to bring any other coal mine back into operation so in the past 
companies, are, when they got out of compliance, they had to get back into compliance because without that, they weren't able to get new permits. But because so few new mines are opening and so few companies are looking for permits to open new coal mines, they just leave them out of compliance. And the enforcement mechanism that has always worked in the past, which is to say, get yourself into compliance or else we're not giving you any new permits, that's no longer working because of the the, the slowdown and basically the stop uh, of the growth in Kentucky coal mines. So, you know, that that's kind of why this situation is occurring. Kentucky coal mines are supposed to set aside money in the beginning to cover cost of cleanup uh, to, to help bring these mines into compliance, even if something like this were to happen. However, many of the major coal mine operations have gone bankrupt, meaning that their bonds are mostly gone or had to be used to things like pay workers or, you know, um, pay creditors or something like that. They've been in bankruptcy court and, and those bonds have been sometimes used for other things. Brugger's report cites an Appalachian Voices report that says that the state has bonds totaling about $888 million to clean up what is estimated to be a $1.9 to $2.4 billion reclamation liability. So if you were to clean up all the mines that are out of compliance, it would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion. And the amount of bonds that the state has access to to fix this problem is only about $888 million. So that is nowhere near enough. So this is a quote from Peter Morgan, who's an attorney with the Sierra Club, about this. The only reason I can see that the cabinet hasn't uh, hired contractors to do the reclamation is because the cabinet knows that the sureties don't have the money to pay out the full bond amounts, and the bond pool doesn't have the funds to make up the difference, unquote. So that's kind of the issue that we have. The companies don't have the incentive to do it themselves because they don't want new mines. The state doesn't have the money because the, the, the mines have gone bankrupt and used their bonds for other things and or they didn't have the bonds in the first place, and we've got a major problem on our hands. But it's worth mentioning that the type of mining which was popular right before the collapse of coal mining in Kentucky was a type of strip mining that's called mountaintop removal, which had massive reclamation needs. They basically blew the top off of a mountain and put it into a valley, uh, and that causes a lot of problems. Even if it's cleaned up correctly, uh, it can really cause problems uh, as as they're trying to to reclaim it. And, and you know, the bond pool just doesn't have the funds to make up um, uh, that that problem. Um, and you know, th these are likely the mines which caused a large amount of the liability in reclamation from these zombie mines. So, you know, it's absolutely worth reading the full report. It's in Inside Climate News. It's free on their website. It was reprinted by the Courier-Journal, so you have access to it if you have a computer. I really recommend you read it. Coal mining, um, it is something with a long, long legacy in Kentucky um, from a labor standpoint, from a resource management standpoint, from a government standpoint, and uh, now we're stuck with its legacy, um, and that is, that is something um, to say. Uh, Jasmine, um, I mean, anything to say about this? No, I don't have really anything to add. It was a really interesting article, and it seems like a problem that there's not a really good solution to with without the money to clean it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, at some point, you know, we would really hope that the federal government would have some sort of but, ability to fix it. Yeah. Um, that's going to take like a billion dollars to do that, though, mm -hmm. so... Um, yeah, that's, that's a real, a real issue. So hopefully something happens. Not a lot of hope that it will though. 
Okay, before we get out of here, a couple of quick hits. So the fundraising at the FEC, we did get quarterly reports. Morgan McGarvey has raised about $2 million in his race for Congress. Attica Scott, his main opponent, has raised about 200000 Rand Paul, the Republican senator from Kentucky, has uh, raised about $17.5 million for this race. And Charles Booker has raised about $3 million this cycle. Um, those numbers are all coming from the FEC quarterly reports. It's hard to say what you're going to need to run. It really depends on what kind of race you're trying to run. But, but that does kind of give you a sense about who has what and what they're doing with it. Okay, as of a few weeks ago, Quintez Brown is back in jail. Uh, we haven't really updated this in a couple of weeks, but he had been released on bail for state charges. We did talk about that. But federal charges were brought in his case, along with a lot of new evidence about this case was made public, uh, and he was detained in federal custody. But this week, a judge released him to home custody, but then immediately stayed their own ruling pending a higher court's review. Um, so he is still in custody, but a higher court is reviewing um, a potential additional release of him into home uh, incarceration. Home custody. Is it home incarceration? Is that the right way to put that? Home incarceration is what we call it in the state system. They might phrase it differently in the federal system. Yeah. but ankle monitor situation mm -hmm. okay um and then lastly the uh, lexington mayor linda gorton unveiled a 460 million dollar budget for the city of lexington and that's sustainably higher than the last few covid ravaged budgets she listed a number of investment this budget makes into the city including raises for almost all of the city workers uh, millions of dollars for public works. So the public works budget has a lot of new uh, entries into it, a lot of new money being spent. I did see some criticism that they're spending $750,000 for new golf carts at the city's golf courses and just $100,000 for the traffic management program uh, in, in the city. So, uh, you know, the, that's an interesting uh, side note. Um <laughs> New youth and violence prevention programming. Again, you know, the devil's in the details with some of these things. It includes new license plate cameras for police, um, other sort of like crime busting type situations in, in this, in addition to some really good programming. Um, and uh, an innovative new approach to infill development, and they funded that with $3 million. If you live in Lexington or if you're interested in the city of Lexington's budget, I can't recommend highly enough Civic Lex, uh, which is a great organization that cares passionately about civics in Lexington, um, and they've got great information about the city's budget, um, and, and that's out there. So definitely check it out. Uh, dig in deep as, you, as you'd like to um, get into those details. But Lexington is going to be spending a heck of a lot more money than they have in the past and overall that's a good thing i think so there you go last quick hit there about lexington jasmine are you uh, do, are we gonna like go golfing in lexington and ride around in one of those new golf carts you got plans to do that i'm probably not gonna do that i've been <laughs> to a driving range twice and was terrible at it so maybe you can just drive the cart then you know uh yeah. you can just get your friends who do golf and the, i mean these things are gonna be fancy i don't know what they're gonna be seven hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> yeah, on new golf carts nice. <laughs> yeah that seems like a lot of golf carts so yeah absolutely all right well let's get to our interview with robert lavertis bell robert lavertis bell is a democratic candidate for the kentucky house of representatives in district 43 He's a middle school teacher and a member of the Jefferson County Teachers Association. Robert has a long history of community involvement in Louisville, having been a leader in the Democratic Socialists of America chapter in Louisville, the Shelby Park Neighborhood Association, 
and the Bardstown Road Youth Cultural Center Brick House for those who know. Um, his grandmother is Maddie Jones, one of the most renowned civil rights leaders in Louisville. And this is his second run for public office. Previously, he was a candidate for Metro Council District 4. So Robert Lavertis Bell, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Hi, Robert. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, guys, John. Yeah, we're doing good. I guess I'm doing good. Jasmine, are you, are you yeah, doing I'm good? Yeah, I'm doing well. Very good. All right. So back in 2020, you ran for Metro Council. And now here in 2022, you're running for the Kentucky House. So, I mean, first of all, tell us why you decided to run for House. And then what you learned from your first run for public office that you're ap- applying to, to this race. Well, you know, to answer your question about um, why I decided to run for the House, it's pretty simple. Um, I originally started this race... I'm planning to run against Reginald Meeks. Um, he was in District 42, which is where I lived at the time. And it was a pretty simple decision. Um, you know, I had run for Metro Council in 2020. And we learned a lot. We did everything, I think, you know, as a crash course. I think we did everything that we could do, given the limitations of COVID, the protests, et cetera. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it. I liked doing it. Uh, I learned so much about what I wanted to do the next time, if the next time arose. And then, you know, but I wasn't planning on being, a, you know, someone who just ran for office just to run. So um, when I decided to run against Representative Meeks last fall, um, I, I really got to thinking. I was, you know, I had been through the protests of 2020 and, and the reality of the protests. And I had been represented by Representative Meeks in some capacity for a lot of my life. He represented me on the Board of Aldermen when I was a kid uh, and in the State House for a lot of my adulthood. And especially at the protests, it was really frustrating for me to see so few of our elected officials using their voice, their platform to amplify or give shape to the politics of that protest movement. So, you know, I never saw Representative Meeks there. He was rarely there. And then I got to thinking about how this has been sort of the the knock on him for a while. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for Representative Meeks, uh, but he missed a lot of days and not just recently due to illness or whatever. He missed a lot of days over time. And, and uh, you know, the most recent 30-day session, I believe he was only there for 11 days and you know, 37 committee meetings. He was only at four of them, didn't speak at any of them. And, you know, it, it really felt like my community didn't really have any actual representation in the state house. So given that you know, I had just come off that run and I felt like Representative Meeks, you know, deserved at this point 40 years in uh, as a representative in local and state government, I, I thought he deserved a little bit of challenge. Now, um, that that's why I decided to to run for state house. I thought that we could have some active representation uh, for our communities, you know, from that seat. And then, of course, redistricting got a little bit crazy, and I think you might want to ask about that. Yeah, I definitely do. But before I get to that, I actually had a different question. Um, so I, in the times that I've heard you talk about your race in your previous races, you're often using, like, the collective first person. You say, like, we – this is what we learned. This is what we did. This is how we're doing it this time. So, you know, you're the guy on the ballot. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious who the we is. Who are the rest of the people that you're referring to when you talk about your race? Well, it's funny. I always say we because I, I feel like it's a it's a movement. I, I feel like I'm a movement candidate, and when I use that, you know, first person plural, I, I mean it. You know, honestly, I mean that. You know, it, it's it's a team effort. You know, we make decisions together as a team. Now, my name's at the top of the ballot. I'm lending my face and my name to this, but you know, everything that I write, you know, I have people look it over, and then that's for the knee campaign. You know, we have people look it over. And, and the political messaging is is a, is a collaborative message, a collaborative you know effort. 
so, so when I say we, I mean, you know, me and my immediate campaign crew, staff, um, you know, JP Leninger, my campaign manager, uh, Greta Smith, our field organizer, the rest of our team. But I, but I also just mean, you know, when I you know, think of the, everybody who worked on our campaign last time and this time, we're talking about dozens and dozens of people who have, who have you know, volunteer their time. Nobody's getting paid. Uh, who volunteer their time to give to this campaign because it is a movement effort. It's not just about you know getting a title for myself or anything of the sort. So yes, it's my name and my face, Robert Lourdes Bell. You say all three names, uh, but it is really uh, it really is a group effort. It's, a, it's definitely a we here. Absolutely. And, and we'll talk a little bit about what that movement might be uh, later. But yeah, I did want to ask about redistricting. So yeah, you, like you mentioned, you were, you know, originally uh, going to be running for District 42. Um, and when he retired, I know that your name was, uh, you know, in the in the, the hat for people that wanted the seat uh, la- during the uh, special election. Um, and now, you know, after redistricting, you're instead of running in, in this open seat, uh, you're challenging an incumbent. Uh, and, and can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts about kind of uh, how you how that all went through your head and, and your campaigns, you know, how your campaign reacted in the midst of the redistricting process and then why you decided to stay in the race when, when your opponent changed. Yeah. Well, redistricting was a whirlwind. I mean, it was a whirlwind for everybody. I, I think you and I communicated a little bit about, you know, little things like, I didn't know this or me asking you to explain some things. Cause you know, it was, nobody had any answers for a very long time and it was just really, really crazy. Um, and it's always tricky. You know, I've been alive long enough to have seen a few redistricting cycles, but this is the first time, of course, that Republicans have had this much control over the process. And so everyone expected things to get a little weird, um, if not, um, you know, evil. <laughs> but And they did get really weird. Uh, so when the redistricting came, and it put me in the district with Representative Stevenson, uh, who was the current incumbent, uh, District 43, um, you know, the decision to stay in the race was uh, pretty simple, um, that there was no good reason not to stay in the race. Uh, you know, I know Representative Stevenson a little bit. Uh, we're not, you know, lifelong friends, but we, you know, we have family connections and I've hung, I've talked to her, um, you know, et cetera. And I think she's a quite lovely person. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I, but the political contrast between myself and Representative Stevenson are as clear as day, even more so than with Representative Meeks or, you know, any number of people, you know, I'm clearly on the left. I'm a movement candidate, like I said before, and she is a, a you know, a moderate. I think that's a fair thing to say. She's, she's not a movement candidate. She doesn't come from the progressive movement. Most people, in the progressive movement, in Louisville don't know who she is. Uh, and so, you know, say what you will about redistricting, this new District 43 that I'm in now is probably the most progressive state district in the state, uh, House District in the state. So, you know, it was formerly already the seat of Daryl Owens, who was a you know progressive champion. Of course, Charles Booker had the seat after him. You know, obviously everyone knows he's a progressive champion. And this was this was the district before it added Shelby Park, Smoketown, parts of Germantown, the original Highlands, you know, to the district. So, you know, it has gone from being a progressive district that, uh, you know, housed some of the most progressive uh, politicians that come out of Louisville, uh, representing Louisville and the state house, to becoming, you know, an even more progressive district. So it made sense to me at that time, given the political contrast between myself and Representative Stevenson, that such a district could be and should be, uh, you know, represented by a bona fide progressive like myself. So, you know, like I said about Representative Meeks, I never really saw Representative Stevenson at the protests, um, you know, this is the most significant protest movement to come out of Black Louisville, out of Louisville in two generations. You know, she wasn't there. Representative Booker was there. Representative Scott was there. I even saw, you know, Josie Raymond was there. 
you know, lots of you know representatives from the House, from the Senate were there, and there were you know a handful of people who represented you know majority black parts of Louisville who did not show up. And then, of course, there's the TIF, the Western Opportunity Partnership, um, which I'm opposed to in pretty much every way. Representative Stevenson advocated for that. So there are these huge political differences between myself and Representative Stevenson from a policy standpoint, not personal. Like I said, she's a lovely person, but from a policy standpoint, that just made perfect sense for me to stay in the race after I'd already raised at this point, you know, 10,000 something dollars or something like that. Um, and so I did. I stayed in the race and, and I'm glad we did. And, and it's a, a you know election about political contrast and, and hopefully not too personal. Yeah, so you've talked about being a movement candidate, and you're running very openly on a socialist platform. You're one of the leaders of the local DSA chapters, and your logo includes the rose that has become associated with democratic socialists. And it's unclear, but we think it's doubtful, at least, that whether Kentucky has ever elected a socialist to the state legislature. Um, But how do you think the state would respond to the presence of a socialist in the General Assembly? Well, that's a good question. But first off, to be clear, you know, I think the question is not whether Kentucky has ever elected a socialist. It's whether Kentucky has ever elected an open socialist to the state legislature. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I can tell you with absolute certainty that Kentucky has indeed elected socialists in the state legislature and other levels of government as well. I've I've talked to them. Uh, So the, the, the question is about me openly declaring at this historical juncture that, yes, I am a socialist. I'm not a capitalist. I believe capitalism is indeed organized crime that has hurt working people. It's irreparably damaged the only planet in the universe that we know can sustain life. Uh, so I'm openly a socialist uh, because for too long, there were many actual socialists who feared persecution, actual prosecution, red baiting, ostracization, uh, you know, being sidelined from the political process altogether. And so instead of running as socialists, instead of you know, trying to legislate as socialists, they identified themselves with um, fellow travelers who were perhaps pro-capitalist uh, progressives or even with anti-progressive liberals uh, to try to pull them a little bit leftward and, and leaving that socialist label aside. Um, but I don't think that strategy worked. Uh, you know, I think, honestly, at this, you know, we've been through 50 years of, you know, the right wing calling everybody a socialist. If you don't actually mm-hmm. hate the poor, if you're not constantly licking the boots of every theocrat and fascist around, the right wing is going to call you a socialist. You know, they call Hillary Clinton a socialist. They call Joe Biden a socialist. They call Obama a socialist. They call him McGrath a socialist. A socialist. So there's hardly any more sting to that term socialist. Um, and so, you know, they if they were to, to respond to my existence now and saying, oh, we really need it. Robert's really a socialist. I don't think people are going to, it's going to resonate. It's going to you know, hurt that much. Um, and another thing too is that, you know, Bernie Sanders is an avowed democratic socialist. He got over 200,000 votes in Kentucky in 2016. He became, became um, what, 2,000 votes of winning the state over Hillary Clinton in 2016. So, you know, that I think opened mine and a lot of other people's eyes about what the people in the state actually want. Uh, and so it, there's at least a couple hundred thousand Kentuckians who are okay with uh, being represented by a democratic socialist. Well, in addition to being a socialist, you are also, you know, you're running for the democratic nomination. So tell us about your thoughts about the interconnection between the democratic party and its left wing. What's your vision for how people like you should fit into the framework of the democratic party, both in general, and then also specifically within the House Democratic Caucus? Yeah, this is a, that's an interesting question. It's complicated, and I don't really truly have all the answers to it. I don't think I do. But here's what I will say. I do believe that the state party, and really nationally, 
of the National Party is by and large run for and by a relatively small group of donors and, you know, another group of people who we might call stakeholders in the party infrastructure. Um, I do not ultimately believe that all of those donors, all of those stakeholders have the interests of working class Kentuckians at heart. I just don't. And to that end, I don't believe that the left wing of this party, insofar as it does have the interests of the working class Kentuckians at heart, uh, can take over that party infrastructure. So, you know, I think we need to be developing political and social institutions that reject the way things have been done, uh, to reject that model of political oligarchy, of patronage, nepotism, of kowtowing to the needs and desires of a, of a donor class, uh, and, and that are truly democratic, you know, top to bottom. Um, these institutions, uh, building those institutions can build a level of political independence for working people that just doesn't exist in the current uh, structure. So how do we do that? Well, we start by relying on fundraising outside of that paradigm, not going head in hand to every developer, every mega rich donor with a certain last name and letting them pick our representation in the back rooms. Right. So, you know, it means getting candidates from, uh, you know, labor movement, from the labor movement, from social movements. Uh, it, it's really about developing independence, political independence for working people. Um, now, to the question of the, the House caucus, uh, I know I won't be alone in the House caucus. I know there are some real bona fide progressives in the state house who I align with and who align with me on a number of issues that we'll work on together. And I'm excited to work with them. Yeah, that's actually going to lead right into our next question, which is, uh, you know, kind of more specifically about that platform. You know, we've talked about the fact that there are differences between you and kind of the center of the Democratic Party right now. But we want to talk a little bit about what those are. Um, and, you know, one of the things we ask all of the candidates who kind of come onto the show is, you know, what what issue do you plan on t- taking the leadership role on? Uh, and, and I would say that, you, you know, uh, some of them are are pretty straight down the middle for what the Democratic Party represents right now. I would expect that yours might be a little different. So tell us, uh, you know, what are the issues, if you make it to Frankfurt, uh, that you would want to be a leader on, um, you know, in the state legislature? Well, two things that come to mind, you know, right off the bat are wage theft and climate change. Um, Wage theft, you know, being this, you know, $50 billion a year crime uh, that is largely... uh, inflicted on working people, uh, you know, 100 times as many, as many losses come from wage theft as come from robberies. And, you know, our laws on, on wage theft can be a lot stronger. And I, I have a, a part of my web, my website, uh, belforky.com slash wage theft goes into what I would describe as uh, what I'm calling the cracking down on wage theft act, uh, includes closing the loophole on, on overtime for retail workers, for restaurant workers, hotel workers, uh, residential care workers, home companionship workers, uh, and really putting some teeth to some of our wage theft laws so that working people know that we stand for them and we don't stand for the bosses. Uh, I think that is not just a matter of a matter of political signaling. Uh, that is a matter of actually putting money into people's pockets and and letting them know that they're at, are people who actually are looking for them, looking out for them. Uh, so one of the things that, that I am advocating for in this wage theft, uh, you know, proposal is that a, a three strikes policy, basically, you know, people always say, you know, the left wingers are not you know, tough enough on crime. Well, I want to get real tough on this crime. The, you know, the first strike of, of committing wage theft is double damages to the current law. Second strike is triple damages and three strikes. If you've been shown to be a, a persistent, offender of, of wage theft um, as an employer in this state, then if the workers who are bringing the suit you know, ask for it, 
um, there could be something of a corporate death penalty. You know, the court can mandate that the employer be permanently prohibited from open, opening or uh, owning a business in the state uh, for some time. Um, so, so that's that's the wage theft part, and of course, climate change. Uh, it is actually quite distressful, uh, distressing uh, to me uh, the degree to which. Uh, we actually aren't leading on climate change. And I, and I can say that from the Democratic caucus uh, to, you know, really the, the social movements that are, that are you know, in the city, in the state. Uh, there needs to be more strident action on climate change from the state house. Yeah, I will say, uh, I don't know if it's good, bad or indifferent, but that is uh, not the first time that either one of those two issues has been brought up uh, by candidates for for uh, the state government or state legislature. So mm-hmm. so that's good. Uh, yeah, awesome. So besides, you know, de- trying to defend uh, against cuts to social spending and restrictions on abortion access and deep cuts in revenue, you know, Democrats in the legislature this session uh, really pushing for issues like legalized marijuana. Um, or legalized medical marijuana. They were kind of dual tracks there. Uh, sports gambling was a big issue, and, and criminal justice reform was something that that uh, Democrats talked about a lot. So, you know, given the current state of the Democratic, you know, uh, platform, I guess, in the House or in the legislature, do you think that those, I mean, you've already mentioned wage theft and climate change, but, you know, joining into that caucus and, and being a voice inside of that room, um, would you would you agree with that, those as a, a good focus issues, or would you push for, for you know, other pieces of the platform to be going first. Yeah, so uh, in short, you know, yes and no. I mean, those are those are important things to be fighting for. Uh, some of them, at least, you know, uh, yes, we should be fighting tooth and nail to defend and expand abortion rights uh, to the rights to reproductive health in Kentucky. They're under attack. Uh, yes, we should be trying to bring revenue to the state in an equitable way, uh, fighting all the efforts to make our tax code even more regressive than it is. And yes, I say on 420. I don't know if this is actually going to be published on 420, but it's 420 yeah. right now. Uh, <laughs> we should be legalizing, regulating, uh, taxing cannabis. So uh, it, absolutely. Uh, so yes, but also no. Actually, actual, uh, also hell no. Uh, because if we're not talking about climate change as a priority, then we're absolutely wrongheaded. You know, yeah, I have opinions on sports betting and horse racing and gray machines and so forth. But I asked, you know, do we have gray machines in hell? Because that's where we're heading as a species if we don't take aggressive action on climate change. Now, I do believe that in a state like Kentucky, uh, especially, we should be talking about a Green New Deal. We should talk about it a lot. Um, because the answer is that for too long, people have treated environmentalism in general and climate change specifically as these boutique issues that are really relevant to people in so-called red states, to working people in general. And they don't talk to Black people about it at all. And you know, this approach has been echoed even by many so-called progressives who often see people in rural areas, Black people, as people who are not to be engaged with on climate change. But that approach has been disastrous. You know, we can't kick the can down the road anymore. Climate change is our present and our future reality, and people need to understand that. And people actually do understand that. So, you know, the Green New Deal is an approach that is, it changes the, the traditional approach to climate change. It means marrying the fight against climate change, uh, the fight for a livable future for our own and future generations, to the struggle for working people in their workplaces and elsewhere in their communities. So when I speak to people on doors, canvassing the multiracial voters of my district, almost to a one, they get it. Yes, these are working class people. Yes, they're in a so-called red state, but they see these floods. They see the devastating tornadoes. They read the news. They are afraid for their future. They're afraid for their children's future, their grandchildren's future. And they want to know that fighting climate change could also mean quality jobs in their communities, better schools, equity, and so forth. So we should be talking about climate change more and more and more. And the fact that we haven't is a tragedy is a, is a travesty. Yeah. I think sometimes we 
talk about it like it's only this federal issue, but there's really so much that we could be doing on the state level to address it. So um, I'm glad that that is a big part of what you would like to do if you make it to Frankfurt. Um, we do want to talk to you about one more thing. Several years ago, we talked to Charles Booker about um, how he would bring his experiences as a younger black man to the legislature. And he's likely to be the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate this year after, you know, making several powerful floor speeches about his life experiences during his only term in the legislature. That's kind of what he became known for. Um, as another younger black man from West Louisville, how would you bring your perspective to the state legislature? Yeah, so yeah, I guess I'm still younger. I'm a little bit older than Representative Booker, but <laughs> you're <laughs> younger. I, I'm still young enough. No, I, so I teach at an all boys school in JCPS, and you know sometimes they they make me feel my age uh, <laughs> a little acutely. Uh, I teach eighth grade English, and it's a, extremely important to me, you know, as a black man teaching English to kids that age. So, you know, I don't think I had a black male teacher in the content area. Um, you know, shout out to my band directors, my gym teachers, but you know, I love them, but I don't think I ever had a black male teacher in the content area, you know, language arts, you know, science, social studies, et cetera, math, uh, until I got to college. Um, so it's important to me that I actually remain a teacher, even when I'm in this race. Uh, and, you know, it's really tough out there for black men, for black kids, for black boys. Uh, not that it's ever been easy, uh, but I do feel like some of my boys uh, that I teach, they don't feel like the world has much to offer them. And, you know, there's a, a melancholia to their existence that, you know, to me is is, uh, is still shocking. You know, this is post Obama, uh, but still a lot of my kids really still resonate with that that Biggie Smalls line about how you're either slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot, even though it's not really crack anymore. But you know what I mean. So, you know, there's there's still you know a lot to that mentality. Uh, Maybe even so more so than it was in '94, '95 when I heard it. So. You know, being a being a black man and you know being acutely aware of you know the experiences of of other black men of other of black kids, black boys, being a parent of of black children, you know that that it's a you know motivates me every single day. Now, on a, another note, a more positive note, I guess, you know, I grew up in Shawnee, and Portland is right around the corner. You know, when I was a kid, we were told, "Don't even go over there." You know, the white folks are going to get you. The white folks are racist. You know, those white boys, et cetera, et cetera. But it's only a few blocks away, but it might as well have been like Timbuktu. Like we just didn't go there. You know, you know, we drove through. That was it. And one thing that gives me a lot of joy with this campaign is that I get to talk to working class voters of all races, all ages in Portland and throughout the district. But yes, we've been spending a lot of time in Portland. And it's great that people are feeling this message. I'm seeing these yard signs and areas that I was told I should have been afraid to go to when I was a kid. So one thing I say all the time is that when people see solidarity, authentic solidarity with their fellow person, you know, as an option, they tend to take it. And that's despite whatever real or artificial boundaries that are placed between us. When somebody feels that you're reaching out your hand to them in love and friendship and solidarity, which is a word that I use all the time, but I mean it, you know, they tend to take your hand back. And that's a lesson I've learned really deeply because I have, as a Black man, been in plenty of positions where I was and where I expect it to uh, be vilified, dehumanized. And yet I truly believe that the answer to that isn't to de dehumanize or vilify the other uh, in return, uh, but to prove authentic, um, you know, to show and prove uh, authentic, uncompromising solidarity. And that's the message I try to live through every single day. 
Awesome. Well, yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, all these have been great answers. Uh, last thing to ask you is if people heard this interview and really like what you have to say and want to get involved in your campaign, how can they do it? Hey, so my website is bellforky.com. That's the number four KY. So bellforky.com. And if you want to volunteer, bellforky.com slash volunteer. Uh, you're going to canvas, um, you know, kick that volunteer link. We do a lot of canvassing. One thing we do, and I think we do probably, you know, you know, not to pat myself on the back too much, better than anybody is we do field. We do field better than anybody when it comes to canvassing. We have these massive, fun canvases that people come through. On. And finally, yes, I, you know, like everybody, I, I need donations. Uh, we have over 500 donors to our campaign, all small do- dollar donors with the exception of my dad. Shout out to my dad. He's the only $2,000 donor we got. Everybody else is, is uh, you know, working class people giving what they can. So bellforky.com slash donate is how you donate to this campaign if you like what you heard today. All right. Well, Robert Lavertis Bell, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it as well. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.